I want to read to you from, from Ephesians today. We're going to carry on our series throughout the book of Ephesians today. I'm going to talk to you about the body of Christ. I have called it the new body and the new family. I'm not changing scripture, I just thought I'd try and give it a slightly different slant because it's not a terminology we use much anymore. But we are the body of Christ. Another way of saying is that is, is we are his family. If he is his head, we are his members. 2,000 years ago, this was really common imagery. If you refer to somebody's body, you would refer to his family. Well, we don't necessarily use that language anymore. <clears throat> we might still use the word head. You know, husband is head of the household, etc. But a new body and a new family. I want to read from the back, actually, and then I'm going to move towards the front. Uh, Paul, in the back of Ephesians 5, finishes off by, After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. I want to read a couple of other verses to you that's going to preface what I'm going to talk about today. And both can be found in Ephesians 1. So Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 to begin. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be homely and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the Trinity, talked to you about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I alluded to the fact that there's a kind of a couple of different types of sonship. Jesus is the Son of God, like the Holy Spirit is God, like Father is God. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God. A really important word there, he's the Son of God. Well, we are two sons of God, that's masculine and feminine. It comes, the word comes from the, 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 the Roman word for adoption. Okay, it happens to have a masculine pronoun in this particular transcript, but it doesn't mean it's only for men. Only men can be saved. That's not what it means. It means you've been adopted. You've been chosen by God. Uh, in my last church, they won't mind me sharing this because, um, well, you don't know them anyway. Um, <laughs> maybe you do. There's a lovely family in our church in rugby who have now adopted nine children. So they adopted three, they grew up, they moved out, they adopted another three. Yay, some, some of you I think do know them actually. Adopted another three, they grew up and moved out and adopted another three, and they're still now growing up. The first three are around my age, the second three now would be in their late teens, early 20s, and the three younger ones are still very small children like you'd see running around in church. <clears throat> I had the privilege of being friends with the first generation of adoptees and, and we had a good time. They were friends. I learned an awful lot about being in a chosen family, uh, being in a blended family. They had different parents. Uh, and it was a beautiful sight. They had so many troubles, so many emotional issues that they had to overcome. And as a friend, you can do so much. I then had the privilege with the second generation to be their youth leader. And by then, I'd learned a little bit about the family. So I could possibly be a bit more help to that generation than I could to the first. And one of the things I would repeatedly say to these three incredibly troubled young people is whatever else happens when you go home, those parents chose you. They picked you. They chose you. They chose to keep you. 
At any time they could reject you, but they never did. Whatever you do, they will not stop loving you because you are chosen. Now, of course, for biological children, it's a slightly different argument. It's subtle, but it's different. You chose to have those children. You didn't manage to walk to a shop window and go, I'll have that one. I'll have this one because he's got curly hair. But you also didn't have to deal with any emotional baggage that came with it. Separation anxiety. Any drug addictions, unless you happen to be a drug addict yourself, in which case, well, you kind of made that rod for your own back, didn't you? But to take on and choose three children that weren't even your own. Do you know the third generation are the children of the first generation? Because they were so troubled they weren't allowed to keep their own children. So they were being torn away from their parents. And the grandparents, the adopted grandparents, stepped in and said, no, you're not tearing my family apart. We'll adopt those two. I love that family. I hope they never listen to this, uh, this recording. They know I love them. I just don't, don't want them to know I've outed them. Adoption is a word that we don't necessarily use every day. Maybe most of us would know some of this, but you'd hope certainly in the church, in the Christian circles, that you would know somebody who had adopted somebody at some point. Maybe there's people in this room I don't, I don't know. But when we talk about we were adopted into the sonship through Jesus, he saw the baggage. He saw that you were rejected by the world. He saw that you were full of sin. He saw that you were broken. He saw that you came with addictions. And he saw that you came with emotional baggage. And he said, I choose you. I love you. And if you can do all of that and I still choose you and I still love you, guess what? There's nothing you can ever do that's going to stop me loving you. You're not my biological child. I chose you. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's alluded to hundreds of times throughout Scripture. And I actually remember coming here. I'm not going to look at the people in question. And I remember saying, we are brothers and sisters. We're nothing else. Don't use titles. Don't call me Father because I stand at the front with a microphone. That's ridiculous. Old churches used to do that, Father. Imagine that, Father, Father Ricky. I'm brother. I'm your brother. And you're my brothers and sisters. I would hope that that would change the way I feel about you. I would hope that changed the way I treated you. Because family, they, do you remember the old phrases, blood is thicker than water? Well, what's greater than family? in relationship I want to read to you from Ephesians at the end of Ephesians 1 22 and 23 where the imagery slightly changes and it moves, moves from adoption and, and being a child to being the body and that's actually more what we're going to talk about today it says the body and God placed all things under his feet this is Jesus he's talking about and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Another conversation I had when I came to Basildon was about the word members. If we are going to be part of his body, a finger is a member, an arm is a member, a foot is a member, an eye is a member. It's, it's a medical term, in fact. You're a member of the body. These are members. These are your members. So if we're going to be part of Christ's body... That makes us members of his, of his body. The thing not to be forgotten here is that he is the head. Keith, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, was it last week when we were in the Diamond Suite just before Pentecost a couple of weeks ago, he talked to us about the body having different functions and each one of us playing a different role. Were we there that week? I'm sure we know. I'm going to read it to you again. It's a long, long verse. It's in Corinthians. Uh, but I want to reference back because I thought it was a beautiful time what Keith shared. He shared it under the, the banner of unity. It's 1 Corinthians 12 for those of you who want to start flicking to your Bibles. It was wonderful, a wonderful time talking about unity and togetherness. I often ask myself as an aside, why in the Bible do they constantly use things like bodies or, or you know, like a building? Why do they use pictures and analogies? In this reference, we're talking about family and we're talking about a body. And I think it was on Wednesday I had this little funny thought to myself. is, is that regardless of anything else, they're the two things that we've all got. Whether they're good, bad or ugly, we've all got them. And to some of you, I know that you might actually say to me, but we don't have a family. But you did. You do. They are there. Maybe they died. Maybe they passed away. Maybe they're just a rubbish family that you've chosen not to be a part of. But you came from somewhere, which means there's a family. You may be incredibly disabled. You may be a little overweight. You may be ugly. You may be disfigured in some way. You may have a really low self-esteem. You may have... Uh, other conditions or mental illnesses but we all have a body so the two analogies that we can draw quite closely to I know that one of the biggest issues people have when we talk about Jesus the Holy Spirit and God is is God the Father especially if they've had an abusive father can you imagine if you've been abused by a man a male figure the head of your home the man who was supposed to provide for you and care for you and support you and protect you and he abused you. And then you came to this lovely safe place where you've met Jesus and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And the preacher suddenly says, and by the way, this is your father. There's a soreness there, isn't there? If you have been let down by your biological father, to then hear of God the Father, it, it, it makes you cringe, it makes you step back. Of course, what we don't realise is that at that stage of our faith, is that God isn't like that. God is the picture of fatherhood. The one who does provide for you. The one who does care for you. The one who does heal for you. The one who lays down his life for you. Who sent his son to die for you. Who sent his Holy Spirit to raise you up. It's an incredible revelation. But whether you've had a great family or a pants family. Whether you have got an amazing body or a body that's falling apart. We all have a family and we all have a body. So I think that's why Paul uses these analogies too, so often. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27, as I said, it's a long verse. I'm going to read through it. Please follow with me. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For you were all baptised by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given to the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? 
But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker or maybe indescribable, indispensable, are the parts that we think are less honourable. We treat with special honour and the parts that are unrepresentable, unpresentable, are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you, we, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We all have a part to play. We're all important to Jesus. We are all a part of his body. We're not called into isolation. We're not called into, I remember a funny story about someone who became a Christian and he made himself incredibly busy because he, he misunderstood the word idolatry. And his, he thought he meant, I couldn't be idle. I couldn't be doing nothing all the time. So he constantly kept himself busy. It's not about busyness. It's not about having a whole load of stuff on your to-do list. But you have a calling. You have a purpose. God has got, got you here as a part of this body for a reason. In, in 1 Corinthians, again, a little bit later on, there's a phrase, and we often use it in this church, actually. It says, everybody hath, everybody has. And I don't mean to sound unkind, but I need to point out that everybody has, but not everybody has the same thing. And this is where the political correctness sirens will start going off behind me, because I am not politically correct, and I never want to be. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a not, if I'm honest. In a society where you are told when you grow up as a child that you can be anything you want to be, you've been lied to. Because if somebody said that to me, I can guarantee you I could never be an author. I could never be an artist. I could never be a brain surgeon. Why? Because I don't have the skills to be those things. I don't have passion to be those things. I may want the paycheck. I remember in my old job before I came into the ministry, it was quite a good job. I was a manager, senior manager in a sales organisation. And almost every one-to-one, you know, you do the annual appraisals, I'd say, where do you want to be in five years? And every single one would say, I want your job. And for years it frustrated me because I didn't particularly like that job. But it occurred to me after a while, they didn't mean they wanted my job. What they meant was they wanted my money. They wanted my Mercedes company car. They wanted my power and my authority, my autonomy to be my own boss. They didn't want all the hassle and hard work and heartache that went with it. They wanted the things that they saw on the outside. If you have been told you can be anything you want to be, you have been lied to. So time for the truth. You can be what God has called you to be. Nothing less. You know, as I said, nothing more.
didn't say that. Nothing less. God has a purpose for your life. He has given you skills. He has given you passions. He's given you desires. He's given you favour in certain areas. But if you are talented and gifted with children, don't pretend to be a musician. If you are gifted as a worship leader, don't try and be an evangelist. If you're administratively minded, get yourself to speak to David and become a trustee. Get yourself involved in the trusteeship, in the administration of the church. If you believe your calling is ministry and preaching, come and speak to one of the elders or wives and we'll talk you through how to investigate that with you. If every one of you wanted to become the worship leader, it's going to become a very boring church. If every one of you wanted to become a children's worker, it's going to become a very boring church. We're not going to go anywhere. You all have a purpose, you all have a gift, and they're all different. They might look similar to one another, but they're not exactly the same. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. It's a good memory verse, this one, if you want to remember anything this week. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that Perhaps instead of citing everybody hath, we should quote this instead. I wish, it's funny when you think about it, I wish that you were all as I am, because then we'd all get on brilliantly well, because we'd all have the same bad sense of humour and same bad taste in clothes. If you were all like me, then I would have lots of fun here. Not that I don't already. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and one has that gift. It actually goes on in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 to give some examples of those gifts, but I'm not going to cut across somebody else's sermon because they're going to come to that later. If we are all called to be part of this family, adopted, chosen, predestined to be part of this family, and we've all been called to do something different, and to have a different gifting or a different anointing or a different passion or a different enthusiasm. There's lots of words there. Maybe we could, to paraphrase that, if everybody operated within their gifting, this is something I've said for a while, if we could have everybody operating in their gifting, then everybody will become very happy, actually, very contented. Sometimes when you try and do things that you're not gifted in, it's like if I try and paint or decorate or there's a few people here might chuckle at this if i try and do some gardening it often goes horribly horribly wrong doesn't it because i have no passion for gardening i have no discernible skills in gardening no knowledge of gardening i am not a gardener apologies for the person whose garden i almost ruined i had to try If we operated within our gifting, we would be happier. When I tried gardening, I wasn't happy. It stressed me out. It made me really concerned because the person whose garden I was supposed to be tending was actually quite good at gardening too. And it created an anxiety in me that I wasn't serving that person well. However, when it came to preaching the word, I I would think I'm, I'm pretty good at it. I'm okay at doing this. I'm okay at evangelism too. I'm pretty good at youth work. I'm a people kind of person. I'm not a tree kind of person. If I operate within my gifting, I'm happier in my gifting. I'm more effective in my gifting. If each of you 
operates within your gifting, you will have a happier life. You will achieve more for yourself and for the kingdom of God when you operate within your gifting. Here's the crunch moment. If you are currently occupying a spot that you shouldn't occupy, because you are not operating within your gifting, you're trying to operate in somebody else's gifting, then you have just made that spot unavailable for the person who should be in that position. If you're the youth pastor in a church, and you don't want to be the youth pastor of that church, because youth is not really the thing... Did you notice I picked the one thing we don't have as the church, so that no one felt picked on? If you were the youth pastor, and you knew that that was not your gifting, and that was not your calling, in fact, you were supposed to be looking after a younger generation, you were really gifted with children or with creche, but you occupied the position of youth leader wrongly, that means the person who should be the youth pastor isn't. Which means they too are not operating within their gifting. They too are not operating within their calling. Can you see how that could multiply in a body of people? If we start to do things because we want to do them, if we start to do things because they need to be done, that is like a swear word in any church in the UK. Why did I do it? Well, because it needed to be done. Because there was no one else to do it then you're going to end up with a whole lot of people not operating within their gifting. I listed a few things that might stop you operating within your gifting. This was not meant to, to hurt, but I can totally understand how to some of you it might, if this is something that could be getting in your way. Pride. A desire to hold a, a higher position or something that you have deemed to be a higher position, to have a place of honour in your community. Fear. If I step out into what I think I'm called to do and I fail, then I will be seen as a disaster. If I pretend to be a PA person when I'm really a gifted, a gifted worship leader and preacher, Fear, pride, honour, ambition. Funny, it doesn't happen in the West so often. It certainly doesn't happen in the UK very often. But when you go to Africa, you meet people, young people, especially in the orphanage that we have over in Zimbabwe and Zambia. You ask them what they want to be. They give you three answers. One that is really obscure until I tell you who works over there. One is they want to be a pilot. And you think, why? Where does that even come from? Well, it's just a job over there that they have a reputation for being really well paid and it's out of the country. That's all they want. They want money and they want out. The second job they want is they want to be a pastor. They want to be a full-time ministry. Why? Because every Sunday, and they are quite good over there, every Sunday they go to church and it is deemed that the person at the front with the microphone has the most honour within their community. When he speaks to people, they listen to him. So it's deemed as if that person has power and authority too. It's something that people want to aspire to be. Funny over here, that doesn't happen. I think we treat our pastors differently over here. Or maybe young people certainly perceive it differently over here. The third job is that they want to be an accountant. And you might think to yourself, that is a really odd selection of jobs. But we have a full-time minister over there called uh, David Brown. David Brown's actually going to come and visit us soon and tell us a little bit more about what's happening in Zambia and Zimbabwe. You'll see it on Facebook. But guess what he did before he became a missionary? 
He was an accountant. And young people, we have it over here. What do you want to be? I want to be a fireman. What do you want to be? I want to be a teacher. What do you want to be? I want to be a doctor. Why? Because those are the jobs that children see. They don't see a salesman. Because when people try and sell to children, they don't want to be an aeroplane seat engineer. Um, because they don't see that job. They don't see that it exists until their eyes are open to it. Pride, fear, honour, ambition. I think it would be a good time. A few months ago we talked about what was God calling you towards and what was God calling you away from. And I left you with that challenge to think about was there anything in your life. This might be the time where each of us, every single one of us has to say, am I doing what God is calling me to do? Or am I doing it because it needs doing? Am I not doing it because I'm fearful of it? Am I doing it because I want to be seen to be in a position of authority? Or am I doing it because I want to serve others? Can you see how we might have some wrong ambitions in here? And if you all want to do this, come chat to me. I'll tell you why you don't. There's lots of references in the Bible that if you want to be stood here giving the word in whatever position that is, you better get it right. Because there is a great weight of responsibility. If you want to be a children's worker and you are not gifted with children's worker, if you're not gifted with children, sorry, you better watch out. Because there is a great weight of responsibility to bring through that next generation. If you want to be involved in worship, but you are not a worshipper, you better watch out. Because to, to be given the responsibility to guide an entire church into the throne room in worship, and if you don't do it well, if you're not called to do it, and you don't draw them in, then you'd better watch out. That, of course, is the negative side. The positive side is if we were all operating within our gifting, we'd all be a lot happier, right? This is a really dangerous thing to preach on, by the way. When you're working with an army of volunteers who help a church lead, the worst thing is you all go, yeah, actually, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> so please go and talk to somebody before you start throwing in the bucket. Let me leave you with this thought. As I was... Preparing for this, I had all the, the theology and the Bible stuff sorted. That's, that's easy when you read your Bible. But when you're praying about it, you say, Lord, I want people's lives to be impacted by this. I want to see people's lives transformed by the word that you want the church to hear today. He said, if I am your family, think about your other family. Think about the way you would operate in your Gilbrooks, Douglases. Blake's households. How do you interact with one another? The thing, the example I came up with, some of you may not know this, but I'm single and I'm a bachelor. So my immediate family is not actually in my home. My immediate family is, say, my sister, my brother, my parents. So I, I kind of work in isolation from that family. But if we go on holiday, it's a nightmare. Because we all come from different expectations. We all come from incredibly different places now incredibly different backgrounds but you know if I disagree with my mother I don't bite at her I don't shout at her I don't scream at her and I don't swear at her why? because she's my mother because I love her do we adopt that same process in church? if we're going on holiday and we are later on in the year my mum has this beautiful catchphrase it's beautiful, it doesn't work but it's beautiful it says we can all do our own thing. Never feel under pressure 
to do whatever everyone else is doing. Of course, until you do that, and then you get told off for not joining in. But we've actually worked that one out now, in the sense that when we do go, we agree certain activities that we will do together, and we agree certain space for one another to explore what they want to explore differently. Do we adopt that same principle in this family? If we agree to go on holiday, do some stay at home? Do you remember that picture we had about the motorway services? I certainly do. We went on a journey as a church, and we stopped in the motorway services. And I don't know why, but I stood in the door. And as everyone walked out, everybody, I know this is you I'm talking about, forgive me, everyone complained. Everybody said, well, we wanted to go to Costa Coffee. Why didn't everyone come to Costa Coffee? And the next person said, well, we wanted to go to McDonald's because we have children. Why didn't everyone come to McDonald's? And some came through and said, well, we couldn't even afford to stop in a motorway services. Why did we stop in a motorway services? And the dream woke me up. And I thought, this is just not how a family should operate. This would be a nightmare if we went on that journey. This didn't happen, by the way. This is a dream. But do we adopt that principle in our family here? Or do we agree on a destination and a journey? And this is a Bible, by the way. It's not just an iPad. This is where I keep my notes. This is my Bible. We've been given our standing orders by God in the Bible. We've been given dozens of prophecies over the last weeks and months. We have our vision and our direction. In fact, I think it's next Sunday, isn't it, chaps? We're doing a vision and, and finance meeting. So you'll understand where the church is financially. And you'll understand where we're going as a church in terms of vision and direction. But once we agree that, do we move forward as one? Or do we complain to one another? We were having a conversation about kindness during the week. And uh, I'm not going to steal that because that's someone else's point. But do we treat each other kindly? Whether it's setting up, setting down, whether it's bringing shared lunch, whether it's the offering. If you see a family in need, do we go and buy them some dinner? If you see a new couple in the church, do you invite them over for Sunday lunch? If you are a young family, do you invite other young families to come and play? Do we actually operate as a community or do we operate two hours on a Sunday morning? It's Living Word Community Church. Something I feel really passionately for is that we should be doing life together. And don't forget, everybody hath. Some of you might hath food and some of you might not hath food. And some of you might hath a car and someone else might hath to go to the airport. Okay? Some of us need to come to church. There's a number of people here that don't have lifts to church. Did you know that? And when the people that they rely on for lifts are away, they then can't come to church. Could we get to an army of volunteers that says, I will go on the lifts rotor. So when somebody can't come, I'd be willing to go and pick them up. That's a good idea. No, we don't. We might do it informally. But we could do stuff like that. There's whole loads of things like that that we could do. Everybody hath, but not everybody hath the same thing. So your homework for this week, I'm going to pray for you before we finish, nice and early again, is to think about what is God calling you to do? What is your gifting? What are you anointed to do? What are you possibly doing because you feel like you have to do it? But actually, by releasing yourself from, you'd be able to do greater things. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word today from Ephesians. I thank you that you have 
not called us into isolation, but that you've called us into family. That, Lord, there should be no heavy burdens amongst us. But, Lord, this is about living in unity, about raising one another up and living as your body, your bride. In Jesus' name. Amen.